to the Lord this morning. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and see down the cloud one like a son of man, with a golden crown in his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to this weighty word this morning. Lord, would you give us ears to hear, help us to understand. Lord, would you impress upon us the seriousness of what this is saying, the reality of the situation that it points to, and Lord, would it also point us to the immense comfort that is found in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in life, there are days and moments that you eagerly anticipate and look forward to, and then there are days and moments that you dread and want to avoid and do not look forward to. And you see this in children. Children are always asking how many days until their birthday or Christmas or some event because they look forward to it and they can't wait for it, and apparently they can't keep of how many days it is until then, so they keep asking over and over and over again because they want to know when that day will arrive. But those same children, during the waning days of summer break, are always asking the same type of question, how long until this day starts? They're asking about when the first day of school is, not because they look forward to it, no, because they dread it. They're trying to brace themselves for that moment when all their freedom is taken away and they have to do homework once again. Well, grown-ups do the same thing in more sophisticated ways. We have days that we count down to with eager anticipation. Right? You can probably think of some days in your mind right now. It's the wedding day, the promotion day, the payday, the vacation day, the retirement day. You name it. We mark our calendars and maybe even have countdowns on our phones because we eagerly anticipate the arrival of these kind of days. We hasten their arrival. But then there are the dreadful days whose arrival we keep track of but not out of any sense of excitement, usually with anxiety and worry and fear. Maybe it's the the day that the bill is due or the day that the vacation is gonna end or the day that the doctor is gonna recall with the results or the day that you have to attend the funeral for a loved one. There are these 
heavier, weightier days that we anticipate, not eagerly, but anxiously, fearfully. So life has these, these two different types of anticipations, right? The anticipation of excitement, longing, and the anticipation of dread and wanting to avoid it. On the one hand, there are those days we, we wish they would arrive, they wish they were now, and then there are th- those days that we wish they would never arrive, that we could avoid them altogether. Well, the reason I bring this up is because in our passage this morning, John describes a coming day which brings these very two different types of anticipations together. Remember, Revelation is written, and it's written in cycles. So it's not just written purely chronologically. It's written in cycles where over and over John brings us through kind of the time between the times of Christ's first and second coming up to that that moment of the end. And each time he brings us there in a new cycle, we get closer and closer to kind of the consummation of history. When all things are, are wrapped up, when the drama of history comes to an end, and eternity begins. And so we come to one of those sections in Revelation 14. And it's a day in which these two type of anticipations kind of come together. John uses the imagery of a farmer waiting for his harvest. And the harvest time has come, everything's ripe. So he's gonna gather his harvest. And John uses this to speak of how history is moving toward that moment when time itself ripens, when the plan of God reaches that fully ripe state and God brings about the harvest of the earth the harvest of humanity. This one event is described from kind of two different vantage points, two different angles, because this day, this kind of God-planned, God-ordained event is meant to be anticipated in two very different ways. For some who are in Christ, God's harvest day of humanity should stir in them the greatest type of anticipation and excitement. Because in, in one sense, every day you've ever anticipated in your life was but a faint echo and shadow and preparation for the anticipation of this day. But for others who are outside Christ, this day is meant to stir in them the greatest anticipation of dread because in one sense, every day that one is dreadfully anticipated was but a shadow of and a warning about this coming day. So from this passage, what I want us to see this morning is that John has written this so that we would properly anticipate the fact that history is moving toward the time when God's plan is fully ripe and he's gonna come for the great harvest of grace and justice. We're meant to look at this passage to anticipate the fact that history is moving toward that right moment when God will wrap up history and have the great harvest of grace and justice. So let's begin by looking at verses 14 to 16 of chapter four and seeing the great harvest of God's grace. So look with me at verse 14, where the harvester of this great harvest is described to us. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown in his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. So who's this great harvester? Well, it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told in numerous places in the New Testament that Jesus is going to come again, but his coming again is going to look different than his first coming. This is what confused the disciples and caused them to to really not understand who Jesus was or what he was doing. They expected Jesus to come kind of with all the pomp and circumstance and the pyrotechnics that John the Baptist had talked about. And yet he came like a lamb as a sacrificial victim going to a cross. What they didn't understand is his first coming was going to look like that. But his second coming would be one in which he comes as the authoritative judge of the living and the dead. In fact, When someone like the Apostle Paul would preach, 
Like in Acts 1731, he would say this in his sermons. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. By raising Jesus from the dead, he has said, this is the one who has all authority in heaven and earth to judge the living and the dead. So this in part, what what John is describing here in Revelation 14, is that scene, that person, and that day that the apostles would preach about. And some of the language that John uses to describe Jesus, which seems odd, a cloud and a son of man and these things, it's actually drawn from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. You can turn there if you want. I'll read it for you. This was the vision that people saw of a king who was coming with a kingdom. It says this, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And note this, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the reason John grabs this imagery from Daniel 7 and uses it here in Revelation 14 to describe this great harvester is because he wanted, especially the people he's writing to who are suffering and being persecuted, to know that there is ultimately only one king who has absolute authority, and there is only one kingdom that will outlast all of the kingdoms. There's only one kingdom that does not have an expiration date. Every kingdom in this world has an expiration date, right? You go to the grocery store, you buy salad, you buy milk, you look at the expiration date because you know, I want to make sure that this is going to last. Well, they were wondering, is is Rome going to snuff out the church? And John is saying here, no, no, no. Christ's kingdom alone will outlast all other kingdoms. Well, now this royal kingly description of Jesus continues as John compliments it by saying that Jesus has something on his head. Notice in verse 14, he wears a golden crown on his head. Now, in the original Olympic Games, so these were the ones played in Olympia, in Rome, they didn't hand out gold medals to the winner. They didn't put like a ribbon with a gold medal. To the one who won the games, they would place a wreath of gold on their head, a crown of gold on their head. This is the same description that John gives of Jesus. He gives the, the victor's crown is placed on Jesus' head. One of the reasons he's doing that is to show the contrast between Jesus' first coming and second coming. In his first coming, what kind of crown did Jesus wear? He wore a crown of thorns on his head. It signified the curse, the shame, the suffering that Jesus came to endure as he bore the judgment in our place. But as he comes again, John reminds those who are eagerly waiting for him, he doesn't come with the crown of shame and suffering. He comes with the crown of victory because he has conquered all his and our enemies. He's conquered sin and death and Satan and hell, and he's coming back as a victor. This is meant to be a vision that is extremely encouraging to those who think, that they're being defeated by the forces that are against them, that the the persecuting forces that are arrayed against them, and they're reminded that in Christ, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave his life for us because in him, we share in his victory over sin and death and Satan and hell. Well, Jesus also has another instrument in his hand. He comes on a cloud like a son of man, a golden crown on his head, and in his hand is a sharp sickle. Now, most of you don't do lawn care, I understand. So this is unfamiliar to you. It's unfamiliar to me as well. But a sickle was this kind of curved blade and a handheld farming tool. So when it was time to harvest, you'd grab this curved handheld farming tool to cut bundles of wheat so that you could gather it up and bundle it up and bring it into your your storehouse. 
So this is what Jesus has in his hand. What's it signaling? Harvest time has come. History is ripe and ready for him. And so verse 15, there's this announcement given. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. One thing Jesus would say in his earthly ministry is, no one knows the day or the hour. No one knows that hour. And yet here is the announcement, kind of looking forward into the future of when that hour dawns, when the the clock strikes and it's ready. What it's showing us is that God is overseeing history like a farmer oversees his field of crops. So a farmer scatters the seeds. He cultivates the growth of those seeds just as the Lord has scattered the seeds of the gospel throughout the earth. He's cultivated the growth of his church. It's come from 12 disciples, some of them fishermen, tax collector, zealots, to a great global multitude from people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. And as a farmer is attentive to that crop and he knows when it's ready to be harvested, so the Lord knows the exact moment when the earth is fully ripe for harvesting. The Bible is very clear on two points regarding that hour of that ripe harvest. The Bible is very clear that that hour is going to come. It states it as a fact, a promise you can bake on the fact. Christ states his reputation on the fact that he is coming again, that the hour is coming. It's an event we can anticipate with the utmost certainty. And yet, the Bible is equally clear that no one will be able to predict when that hour is going to come. In fact, the Bible warns against anyone who would engage in vain and empty speculation about when that exact moment is going to be. That's one of the warnings that the Bible gives and the book of Revelation is given, that we're to anticipate eagerly the return of Christ, but we are not to engage in vain and empty speculation about when it's going to happen. When it comes to the return of Christ, here's how Christians should have a a stance and approach to it. Christians should pray for Christ to return. Maranatha is that, that statement in the Bible. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Because when we pray about it, it puts it at the forefront of our hearts and it starts to even knit our hearts toward the longing for his kingdom and the things about which our Savior cares about. So we pray for Christ's return. We're to eagerly anticipate Christ's return. Paul talks about all those who have loved his appearing, who have longed for his appearing. Christians should live with a sense of any momentness. Okay? We don't know the moment, so we live with a sense of any momentness, which encourages us to be faithful to be zealous, to be about the things that matter rather than flitting our lives away on things that ultimately will not matter in the end. So we pray for Christ's return. We anticipate his return. And Christians, believe it or not, should work toward Christ's return. Now, let me be careful. Let me explain what I mean by this. I don't mean that somehow by our work, we can expedite the return process, right? Whenever you buy a product online, you have a couple choices. You can do the cheap, slow way, or you can pay more for the quick, fast way. That's not how the return of Christ works. You can't like pay extra for him to come back quicker, okay? But Jesus does give us a clue as to what the history reaching its full ripeness will mean and look like in Matthew 24, 14. He said this, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So Jesus says, you know when history will be fully ripe? When the gospel is preached throughout the whole world to all nations, that's when you know, and then the end will come. Well, you know how I know this mission isn't accomplished yet? Because he hasn't returned. That's how smart I am. (laughs) There's still more 
seed to be scattered. There's still more nations to reach. There's still more Bible translation projects to happen. There's still more of this work to do because the time isn't fully ripe yet. Now, there was uh, a gentleman, a lady in our church. Um, she's not here, so I can say her name. Mrs. Mrs. Barron, sweet lady, very generous. And she always told me, let me know when anyone's going on a mission trip so I can support them. And I was like, oh, it's very, very exciting, very generous. And she, and she explained why. She said, the reason I really want to support missions is because every time I support, I think maybe this mission trip will be the one in which that last person is reached and Christ will return again. So I just want to keep giving my money towards that. Very sweet encouragement and very generous with it. And so I kept telling her, well, there's a, this mission trip's going to happen, this one, and, and she kept supporting it. And it was very sweet. That, that is a good, encouraging way to think about giving toward mission. Maybe this could be the one that I support that the Lord uses to bring about that time when he is going to return. Well, verse 16 describes the actual activity of harvesting and reaping that Jesus does. Look at verse 16. So he who sat in the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. So that sickle comes to that ripe grain harvest, cuts it down, bundles it up, and brings it into the storehouse. Now, the reason I've called this section the great harvest of grace is because when a farmer gathers that ripened wheat, that ripened grain or barley, it's bundled up in order to be brought into the master's storehouse. And that's the imagery at work here. Jesus is gathering his people in order to bring them into the storehouse of his grace, in order to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Welcome into my kingdom. This is a day that all Christians should look forward to with eager expectation. If you are in Christ, then that great coming harvest day, the day when Christ appears to judge the living and the dead should be a day that fills your heart with great comfort and anticipation. Now, I don't know if you caught me. The day that Jesus appears to judge the living and the dead should be a great comfort to you. Now, perhaps that sounds a bit odd to you because you probably thought, aren't I supposed to be terrified of that day? Aren't I supposed to tremble in my shoes and have my knees knock and my hands shake? Not if you're in Christ. Not if you're clinging to Jesus by faith. Not in your works. Not if you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You shouldn't tremble. You should look forward to it with eager expectation and longing and be comforted by it because Christ is coming. Christ, the one who laid down his life for you, is coming. That's why you should look forward to it with comfort and longing. There's only one time outside of jury duty that I had to enter a courthouse. And I couldn't have been more eager and happy to enter that courthouse for what I had to do there. I was there in that courthouse because I wanted to legally marry Ashley. And so I had to go in there to sign the marriage license. And so I was happy to go in that courthouse to fill out that document, to do whatever it took so that I could say I do. And I think she was happy about that as well. My anticipation of going into that courthouse was not because I had to appear before a judge because I had a sentence. It's because I was going in there for something that I longed to have come to fruition. That's the kind of view and anticipation that a Christian, one who is in Christ, should have regarding Jesus, the great harvester, coming to judge the living and the dead because he's coming to gather his people to himself to place them in his storehouse of grace. And there's this old... A Reformation Catechism from the 1500s, the Heidelberg Catechism, and it gives this question and answer that's very helpful on this point. Here's this intriguing question it poses. What comfort is it to you 
that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? You might think the answer is, it's no comfort to me. I'm scared. No, this is the answer. In all my sorrow and persecution and struggles, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judged from heaven the very same person who submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse and sin from me. That's why we look forward to it. As one hymn so beautifully puts it and boldly puts it, says, as bold shall I stand in that great day, who can a charge against me lay? Fully absolved through Christ's great name from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. That's how a Christian should approach and view the great judgment that is coming. Well, now we turn our attention from the great harvest of grace to the great harvest of justice. The harvest imagery we just saw in verses 14 to 16 was that of, of a wheat harvest. It was meant to be encouraging. It was meant to be a comforting picture of Christ coming to gather his people to himself. But now the, the imagery shifts and changes. So it's, it's like a sunny day in Florida, like we, we saw maybe yesterday up until 4.30 p.m. Beautiful, the sun is shining, the birds are singing, and then all of a sudden, kind of the dark clouds descend and the storm comes. Because this is a different harvest. It's a harvest of grapes. And the imagery is meant to be alarming and sobering and somber rather than comforting. And this dual vantage point of this, of this harvest day, the harvest of grain and the harvest of grapes, is put side by side because it's meant to show the contrasting and separating effect of that great harvest day. So in Jesus' teaching, he would regularly speak of his return as a day of contrast, a day of separations, a day of revealing two different things. So for example, in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the day of his return as separating and revealing those who truly knew him from those who didn't know him. Depart from me, I never knew you. What we just saw in the call to confession, Jesus talks about that great day as revealing the contrast between those who built their life on sand and those who built their life on the rock of Christ's word. And then in Matthew 13, Jesus talks about the separation between the wheat that will be gathered into the barns and the chaff that will be thrown out and burned. And then in Matthew 25, probably the most well-known one, Jesus gives a parable of his return that he's going to come like a shepherd who's going to separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep welcomed into eternal life and the goats sent into eternal punishment. And now what John describes here is not anything new in one sense. Revelation doesn't say, in a sense, anything that's new that hasn't been said elsewhere in the Bible. Now it says it really strangely at times with a lot of imagery and symbolism. But John is saying what his... Lord and Savior has already said many, many times. John is describing Revelation 14 in more imagery from another angle, that great coming harvest day that Jesus has already spoken about numerous times. And from the image and angle of a grape harvest, John warns all who would persist in their rebellion, in their rejection, in their sin, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's warning people that God will not be mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So look at verses 17 to 20 with me. And another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 
stadia. Now the imagery John is using is that of grapes. When they're fully ripe, you know it because they're plump, they're juicy, they can be picked easily from the stem. And so when they reach that fully ripe state, they'd be gathered into baskets and then they would be poured into this large stone wine press that was raised a little bit above the ground. And workers would stand in that wine press as the grapes were being poured into it and they would trample on those grapes, squishing out the juice so that that juice would flow in a funnel down into a collection jar that stood just beneath the wine press to collect all the juice from it. This is a very familiar image that all of John's audience would have known, that they would have seen multiple times. Many of them probably would have worked in a wine press. And the reason John uses that image is because it vividly portrays how overwhelming, how unbearable, how thorough the judgment of God will be. And yes, it is a most unpalatable thing. But what John is saying here is in the end, the mass of humanity that remains committed to rebelling and revolting against God, to rejecting Christ and his free offer of the gospel to cover all of our sins, will be like fully ripe grapes that will be trampled in the winepress of God's wrath. Now, wrath is not something we like to think about. It's that, it's that attribute of God that's, that's kind of like that family member that we, we have, but we don't want anyone to know about, right? And yet, we have to understand that to a degree, the, the wrath of God is meant to be a, a thing that we celebrate, that we, we rejoice in, because if God did not have justice, if God did not have a proper, righteous, holy anger towards evil, he would not be good. So we have to define the wrath of God. What, what is wrath of God is not a capricious, off-the-handle, I-don't-like-you type of anger. The wrath of God is his holy hostility toward evil and injustice. It is his perfect, resolved, inflexible commitment to enact justice on deserving sinners. Now, on the one hand, God's inflexible commitment to justice is a good thing because it means he will deal with sin and evil as it deserves. Consider this article about Supreme Court justice in New York. So September of last year, a New York Supreme Court justice who had taken oaths and vows to uphold the law was sent to prison for accepting money in exchange for swaying legal cases. So this judge who sworn out to uphold the law was taking money and based off the money he was taking would turn a case one way or the other. Now what struck me about this article was the press release from the attorney general, which said this, People deserve a justice system that they can have faith in. What an interesting statement. Where do you get that statement from? Where do you get the statement that people deserve a justice system they can have faith in? I would argue from the Christian worldview. It is the only world that upholds a true sense of justice. And so the statement went on to say this. That's why this corrupt behavior, a judge who swore an oath to the law, taking money to sway legal cases, is so egregious and unacceptable. There's something innate within us, that when we see injustice and evil, when we see a miscarriage of justice, something rises up within us and saying, that's wrong, that's unacceptable, that's egregious. Why is that? Because we are made in the image of the God who is perfectly, inflexibly just. We cry for justice because we know innately, whether we acknowledge or not, that there is someone who can answer that cry and bring about justice in the earth. We can have the utmost faith in the justice of God because... He's not like any human judge. He cannot be bribed. He cannot be bought off and his character will never be bent and swayed by people or public opinion. It is perfect and inflexible. Whenever we hear about things like the persecuted church, 
Christians who even today are being martyred for their faith. Whenever we read in the news, have you ever done the scrolling through the news? It, it can be quite depressing at times because you see story after story of evil and injustice and wrong. Whenever you see that, knowing that there is a God who is just, who has a holy and righteous wrath, is the only true comfort that we can have in the face of so much wrong. Why? Because we know that there is one who will ultimately do something about it. No one will escape the proper reality of their sin. In the end, no one will get away with injustice or evil. This is why believers sing round the throne in chapter 15, verse three and four, this song. They see God enact his justice and they say, it's great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways. There's ultimately gonna be no miscarriage of justice with the Lord. No evil will slip past him. No injustice will be left undone. O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. So remember, one of the cries of the persecuted church in Revelation is, how long, O Lord, right? How long, O Lord, will you allow this evil and injustice to go on? Well, John is saying here, one day that question, that cry will be replaced with the song of praise that God is just and true in all his ways, that his righteous acts have been revealed because he will set all things right and make all things new. Now, it's comforting as God's inflexible justice and perfect judgment is, it is equally as dreadful and terrifying. When I was 12 years old, I stole, I should just say, maybe I attempted to steal $20 from my parents to buy an airsoft gun. It's a little awkward since they're here now as I give this, but they, they already know about it. <laughs> Now, it took my dad, who made a career out of catching people who steal things and fraud people for a living, less than 24 hours to discover the crime and the criminal in his own home. And so he called me into his room to confront me about the $20. And you know you have those moments where you know they know. This was one of those moments. I knew he knew, which meant that there was no place I could hide and there was no excuse I could give. There was no lie I could tell that would get me off the hook. My only hope is that he would keep the lecture short. That was my only hope (laughs) in that moment. Now that kind of being laid bare, feeling that I know he knows feeling that I can't hide feeling is just a small flavor of what it will feel like to stand before the perfect judge without the covering of his perfect righteousness over you because he is the one who searches heart, who knows the deepest recesses of our being better than we know ourselves. And without the covering of his perfect righteousness, the mask of hypocrisy will be torn off. The veil of secrecy will be pulled back. All thoughts of entitlement will vanish. And I deserve this will vanish. No blame can be shifted. No excuses can be offered. And all that the world values that you could offer to the world to to get something, whether it's wealth or beauty or power or gifts or fame or possessions, it will be revealed as vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Only one thing will ultimately matter in that moment. Only one thing. It will not be good intentions. It will not be good deeds versus your bad deeds. It will not be good theology. It won't even matter if you were a 
Presbyterian or a Baptist, whether you're baptized as a baby or adult or both, it won't matter if you were raised in a Christian home or not. Your church attendance won't matter. What will matter in that moment is if your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The only thing that will matter in that moment is if nothing in your hands you bring simply to the cross of Christ you cling. Reflecting on the great harvest day of God's judgment is meant to help us gain a perspective on what truly matters and what is of great concern. It's meant to help us think about that verse, what good is it to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? We tend to waste a lot of time and energy and money and emotion on things that are not of eternal significance. And I'm definitely included in that camp. And yet it's passages like this that help us sharpen our senses, recalibrate our focus on what really matters. Also reflecting on the great harvest of grain and grapes, grace and justice is meant to increase our gratitude for the gospel and to overwhelm us with the love of Christ. The question that overwhelms me and should overwhelm you is not, why does the wine press of God's wrath exist? That's not the question that should overwhelm you. Knowing myself and my sin and hopefully knowing yourself and your sin rightly, the question that should overwhelm you is, why did God spare me from being one of the grapes that was in that wine press? Why did he spare me from that? Why did God show his love for me and that while I was still a sinner, he sent his son to die for me so that I could be saved from the wrath to come? We have a a theology group that meets together that has a bunch of questions and answers. And my goal is always to try and not say, I don't know. But if I was asked this question, why did God spare me while I was still a sinner and sent his son to die, I would have to give the answer, I don't know. Because there's... There's no reason I can find within myself that God would show his great love toward me. He must have chosen me for reasons outside of me because I cannot find any reasons inside me why he would choose me. And I know my parents can amen that. Not being able to answer that question should overwhelm one with gratitude and love for Christ. Well, finally, thinking about and anticipating the great harvest of grace and justice should make one zealous to spread the gospel and see more people brought into the harvest of grace. It's what Jesus tells his disciples. Matthew 10, 37 and 38. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. May God help us anticipate and be prepared for the time when history is fully ripe for the great harvest of his grace and justice. And may we be found in Christ. Let's pray to that end.